You're listening to Saturday Morning Rewind with Tim Nidell. Let's go back in time when turtles roam the sewers of New York. A masked duck protected the streets of St. Canard. I am the terror, the black And knowing was half the battle. It's time for Saturday Morning Rewind. Hello, Toonsters. Welcome to another episode of Saturday Morning Rewind. I'm your host, Tim Nidale, as usual. This episode is going to be a little different. Actually, it's going to be quite different. Um, I've been really, really busy planning our D23 Expo trip in the middle of August, so I haven't had a chance to interview anybody lately. So, I reached into my old interview archives and pulled out a really fun interview I did. I want to say it was been five years ago from my old website, old podcast called The Rock Bottom Podcast. So you're going to hear me, you hear another guy also asking questions. Um, Jesse, a good friend of mine, he was on the Rock Bottom Podcast with me. And uh, I do have to warn you that uh, the interview is great. It's also, it's with Pat Freely, by the way. Um, he was Krang on Ninja Turtles, and he was also Wildcat on Tailspin. Those are the two primary shows that we talk about during the interview. But uh, he's incredible. That's why I wanted to play it for you guys. But I do need to warn you that I'm definitely not on the top of my game during this interview. It was five years ago. I'm, I was new. I didn't quite know what I was doing. So please bear with me through my questions and just listen to the amazing stories he has to tell about his time on Ninja Turtles and Tailspin. So uh, yeah, nothing else going on. So hope you guys enjoy. See you guys next time. And let's try to get patched into the Technodrome. Let's call real quick. Try to get Krang on the phone. Hello, this is the Detective Yeah, we're what trying to get a... Talking? This is Tim, we're trying to get a hold of Krang. Look, he's sleeping. Ah. I, I, I'm afraid to wake him. Here, Krang. Man, what is your ignorance? You got a call from, from Tim and that Jesse guy. Ow. Yes, that's so what is your... Ignorance to you, boys. Oh man, sorry to sorry to wake you like that, but we're trying to trying to get this interview going. Oh, isn't that charming? You did a interview with Jesse and you miserable. <laughs> okay, shoot. Why do you need to know? All right. Um. So, Craig, where, where do you come from? Oh, please. Answer this questions. I'll have to get back. Come here. What? They want to ask questions. Oh, wait, Pat. Hello, boys. Hey, what's up, Pat? How you doing? Good, man. How are you doing today on a Saturday morning? Good. It's uh, actually sunshiny in California. It's been raining, but uh, it's looking good. So what's on your mind, guys? What do you want to talk about? Well, I wanted to focus mainly on, on Ninja Turtles, of course, but I wanted to get to know you sure. as, an, as an actor, as a person, and, and also talk about a little about your teaching that you do now. Sure. All right, so let's get into the first question. I want um, Tell us about the first role that you ever had as a voice actor, and what was going through your head at that same time. That you know, Were you nervous? Were you excited, or what? Well, I was nervous. I was in Australia, and uh, the a advertiser had called the theater and said, do you have anybody 
that does a Jimmy Cagney accent. And they said, oh, yeah, we have an American. We have a Yankee in the company. <laughs> they figured they, we all do impressions. You know, we sit around in bars and do impressions. And so I said, yeah, I did it, but I didn't know how to do Jimmy Cagney. Uh, so I went to uh, back to my flat, and I was staying with a British guy, and I said, I don't know what to do. I can't go to a movie. I mean, what do I do? And the guy said, oh, don't worry, I do him. So he did his impression. You, get that Iraq, you kill my brother, Jogo. So there I was, you know, okay. So I went to the studio, and I did uh, my best at Jimmy Cagney, and it paid the same amount as a whole week's salary in the rep company. And I thought, oh, this is good. And about two weeks later, I was in a cab, and I, I was listening to the radio, because I thought, oh, this is good. And I heard somebody doing a Jimmy Cagney impression. I thought, oh, that's the worst I've and I realized it was me. <laughs> I was thinking up the airways with a really bad impression. That was my beginning uh, as doing uh, doing voiceovers and character voiceovers. And um, I had a lot of time over in Australia, a couple of years, to be really bad before I came back to the States and landed in Hanna-Barbera for my first role, which was in a Scooby-Doo, you know, a mall guard or something. And, uh, and uh, uh, that uh, was off and running. Yeah, it sounds like a big break for a voice actor was a Scooby-Doo cartoon. Oh, yeah, and guess where I met the producer? In Tahiti. <laughs> I was on vacation, and his poor producer was over there, and the minute I heard he was a producer, I started doing, you know, good morning, that's not a lovely day on the beach, and he went, look, stop. If you come to Los Angeles, I'll audition you, okay? Just go, oh, no more, please, I'm on vacation. So I did. Uh, I got hired on my first role, and then uh, I was off and running. The second gig was a, a paid gig with Hanna-Barbera then. Yeah, well, not, actually not my second gig. I did several, lots of commercials over in Australia. And then I, I moved to Seattle for a couple of years, took a day job in an advertising agency, and then freelance doing character voices. So I had probably about, well, I trained as an actor for six years. I went to Australia and had a couple of years doing voices, and then two more years doing freelance in Seattle. And so I had about four years really um, focusing on all character voices and using my voice and then training before that. So when I hit uh, Los Angeles, I was 30, and I was well-prepared. I was pretty well-prepared. I still was kind of green, uh, but um, uh, I had the background and experience to hit the ground running. And I also had a grub stake. You know, I, I saved money in Seattle. And the reason I'm telling you this, guys, is because uh, it's important to, you know, have a day job or have some money mm -hmm. to start going. Because it took another, oh, I'd say, I was guesting on Scooby-Doo's and shows, but it took me about four years in Seattle, or in Los Angeles, rather, to land my first regular role in a cartoon show. So it took a while. So what was your first regular cartoon show? The Incredible Hulk, okay. about 83, was the first one. <clears throat> I played Major Talbot, the guy that was after the Hulk. Straight in that time, Mystery of Army property. <laughs> one of those roles. Okay. And then at the 83, all of the shows that uh, He-Man previewed, and that was the first show that was in the afternoon cartoon slot where they had original cartoons Monday through Friday. Before that, it was always Saturday morning once a week. So if you did a Scooby-Doo, the whole season was only 13 shows, and then they showed reruns all year. So it really wasn't enough to support you unless you had a lot of shows, and yeah. you did. 
to. But then all of a sudden, there was this huge glut of work in Los Angeles. There was only about 20 of us that could supply three different voices in one half-hour show. And so we had more work than we could do. All right, so let's, let's, yeah, let's get started talking about Ninja Turtles a little bit. Um, how did you get involved on the show? Well, it was interesting uh, because I wasn't originally cast in the show. The director had cast himself in three roles, Vern Thompson, uh, Krang, and I believe Baxter, no, uh, Vernon. And the producer said, oh, it's way too much, and he was unhappy with it, so he called me into uh, audition for those three roles. And I auditioned for Krang, and, um, you know, the three of them, Vern and Vernon, and he said, well, great, you know, I, I got the role. And I said, look, I can't do all three. <laughs> you know, I can't separate them. Uh, and so Vernon, fortunately, went to Pete Renaday, who was wonderful. It's Vernon, the, the scaredy cat. And uh, I ended up with those two roles, and then Baxter Stockman, and, of course, guests on almost every show. Because in those days, we didn't we didn't bring in guests. Yeah. The whole cast just had to cover everything. And how did you come about with the, with the voice of Krang? Well, it was throwing it against the wall. It's the school of, you know, Linguini is acting. Throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. I had broke, because I had started teaching at the same time I started in my career in Australia about four years before, I'd broken the character voice down to its six elements. And so when I read the description of Krang, which is, you know, a burbling blob of a brain, disgusting but funny, I thought, gee, I better, you know, hit my different elements of the character voice. And so um, I thought of being crafty with a lot of range, because he's a villain. And then I thought of a puffy kind of back of throat placement and undulating, because he was a blob. And then I thought of disgusting sounds like, because he had tentacles. And then, then I thought of burping by bringing air back in my throat. And, of course, I'd learned that on the, you know, at recess in the playfield <laughs> in elementary school. backwards, you know. And so, in burping, so I, and I thought, gee, they'll never let me take the time to burp between lines. I'll do them on the lines. Sort of like when he got upset, he'd get heartburn. Uh-huh. Oh, yes, do it. Right? <laughs> And I threw it all up there, and it somehow stuck, and uh, uh, it was very unique because it was something that I, I created on the spot. And uh, so it was a, one of the more unique voices that I ever did. It wasn't based on an impression of anybody or just realizing the description that was written on the page. How much of your uh, voice work is done on the spot? Like, how many of the voices... Well, you know, it, uh, at the beginning of my career, I did a lot of uh, impressions. And then, like anyone, when you begin any craft or art, you, you're really imitating someone else. And then you slowly make it your own. And as I went along for the first few years, I did impressions. And then I started coming up with characters on my own. I do, well, it could be my brother, but nobody else did my brother. And then i mix and match and change. And so, um, as things progressed, I got more facile with the ability to kind of throw things together, and um, and so so it became more of a creative process of right on the spot, sort of like baking cake from scratch. You get so used to it, you can just throw the various ingredients in and come up with what you want. But it took a while to get to that point, 
and a lot of times I rely, as many, I realize that Mel Blanc, when I worked with him, and Dawes Butler and June Foray, I realize that they're doing characters they've done before, but they make slight adjustments, which seems to be, and I was really glad to see that because I thought, gee, how do these people come up with all these <laughs> original voices? So I'd say most of us that do character voice work have sort of uh, set characters, and then we adjust and adapt. Just like, you know, Mel Blanc's Sylvester is very similar to Daffy Duck. It's just sort of a different F. And, of course, they think differently. Yeah. But the sound of the voice pretty much is just an adjustment. So you've worked with Mel Blanc before then? Yeah, I got to work with him in the 80s doing Captain Caveman. That was exciting. Wow, I bet. I got it. Oh, I was, um, you know, I was sitting next to an actor. We just lost Kenny Mars, Kenneth Mars, and we were both as excited as could be. He was uh, uh, pretty amazing to be in the same room with. That's why, you know, when you get in the room with, you know, Dawes Butler and these great people, you get good really fast. Somehow the energy and the excitement and the... It's like skiing with a better skier. You get you, you get better fast. <laughs> And that's why I teach, when I teach now and I have my events and workshops, I always put Nancy Cartwright or Brad Garrett or Ed Asner or coming up Rob Paulson in the booth with the uh, students, hmm. working with them, not just talking to them, because there's something about it that's uh, amazing. Rob Paulson says when the tide comes in, all the boats float. And Rob and I did, of course, about 200 episodes of Ninja Turtles together. Uh, in the original cast, sitting to, uh, next to each other. And then we did Bobby's World. I bet you we've done about 500 to 1,000 shows together. Wow. And uh, he's just terrific. Um, as you know, he did Pinky and the Branded Pinky and yeah. Animaniacs. I believe he played Yakko. Yeah, I talked to Rob, uh, I think it was four or five years ago. He's a great guy. Yeah, he's a really wonderful guy. And I, in fact, I just hired him to do a commercial last week and got to work in the booth with him. It's always a joy. He did Raphael, of course, on yeah. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is basically the way Rob is. He's kind of a smart aleck. And uh, <laughs> that, that, that show was very well cast. Barry Gordon playing Donatello, who's very academic and an intellectual. Barry went on to get his law degree, and he was the uh, president of the Screen Actors Guild. And uh, Cam Clark, who played, uh, oh gosh... Leonardo is very straightforward and kind of, you know, we always tease him because he never got he, he never got the funny lines. He always got the heroic <laughs> lines. But he's kind of like that. He's kind of a straight-ahead guy. And uh, and then Pete Renaday was wonderful as Splinter and Vernon. And uh, James Avery, who played Shredder, was very good because he's a Shakespearean-trained actor, but he played him on one level. You know, he played him really tough and... Because train was all over the place. We kind of deemed them the, the odd couple of outer space. <laughs> yeah, that brings us to the next question. Um, what was it like with the other cast members while you were recording? It was just a, a, a pure joy. The first year was the loosest. They let us ad-lib a whole lot. And that's where we got the feeling of, in a sense, of culture and real teenagers, how they would react. You know, uh, and some real comedic lines. The second year after it became a huge success, it became a success really quickly and strong. Then they started buttoning down on us because it was precious. 
and we're making so much money. Uh-huh. It was the first show to ever have a network and syndicated and foreign uh, buy at the same time of wow. any show on camera or off, animated or live. And so it was huge. And so then they started, we had to, you know, beg them to take our ad libs. <laughs> But it was always a good cast. It always had a, a good spirit to it. There was never any attitude. We were just really delighted to be involved with such a, a huge popular success. And we knew it then. We knew how strong it was. Did any of your ad-libs ever make it on camera? Oh, yeah. I mean, we had a lot. Rob and I would sit next to each other and shove notes to each other. For, for example... Uh, I remember one day I had a line that said, How would you like to be boiled in oil? And he handed me a piece of paper. It was Raphael. I just, we were just sitting there as we were recording. And I read it, and instead of giving that line, I gave this line. How would you like to be sauteed in oil with just a touch of cilantro? <laughs> so that kind of bent stuff that, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles show was known for a little uh-huh. around the corner. That came from a collaboration of improvisation. And we'd, we'd be able to punch up a line every so often. It gives you guys more character as as, as characters. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, Raphael would change his line to be a little more smart-alecky, a little more edged. And uh, that just kind of brought it off the page and more into the reality of how people deal with each other, especially teenagers within the Turtles. Mm-hmm. They tease each other. Then the writers caught on and they would write more edge and more relationship between the Turtles and between Krang and Shredder. Now I'm very interested. You said you weren't the first choice for Krang. What did their Krang sound like? I, I never heard it. Uh, I don't. I think they just buried the track. Yeah. <laughs> but, so I actually never heard the efforts of the the director. Uh, I was actually wondering uh, whenever he was, whenever you were talking about uh, them cracking down the producers and all that. Uh, once they realized they had a, a huge show on their hands, you know, and a gigantic toy line, and you know, like you said, it was just it was making a lot of money for them. Uh, yeah. What kind of stuff would they do? Like, how do they tighten uh, the creativity? Well, well, what what happens? We get the script and we we rehearse it. And then we go in, and uh, and I can't remember. I think we did rehearse first, and then we go in, and when we have a line, that's when we go in the studio. That's when we do our ad lib. We usually saved it and didn't do it in rehearsal. We like to hit them with it. So we'd hit them with the line as we're recording, and then they'd stop and go, "No, no, you got to go back to script." And then we beg them, "Oh no, it's so cool. It's just what they say." And, you know, one out of three, we we okay, cause you're all right. We'll we'll go with it. So we had to kind of beg them. <laughs> Try to sneak them in underneath the line. Oh, yeah, we sneak <laughs> them in while we record it. And, and I always, to this day, even when I do on camera and, and I'm doing a sitcom, I'll do my ad lib if I think it's better than what's written. I'll do that first. And then once I do that, I go back to the script and give them what they wrote. But I'm always looking for what makes it better. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, uh, how long would you say it takes, like, a recording time for a standard episode? Uh, I think about three hours. It generally three takes hours. about three hours. You know, by contract, it's supposed to be four hours for a TV animation recording track session. But we usually are out in three if they don't 
take and pick and pick. Yeah, from the time we get there, a lot of times we don't rehearse, especially if you've done the show for a while, and you you record, and then it's a longer recording session. If you rehearse, it's a shorter recording session. But generally, to this day, it's still uh, the place where the whole cast gets together and does the show. There's exceptions, but that's one of the few places, because, you know, gaming and interactive, you're alone, and shop it in later. So it's a much more agreeable way and more fun way of uh, recording. So it's pretty interesting that you would all gather together and make massive recordings. Yeah, today, to this day, uh, we do that. I mean, the Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon, you, you arrive and the whole cast is there, or most of the cast. Sometimes there's somebody missing, and they, they put in the, the line uh, later. But that's still the way we do it. Yeah, you were involved in, I'd say, 90% of my favorite shows back in the 80s and early 90s, um, like Turtles, Tidy Toons, DuckTales, Tailspin. Um, do you have any favorites of your own? I like Tailspin a lot because of the character Wildcat. Oh, yeah. Uh, who was Baloo's buddy. Baloo, I you raised you a banana. I forgot. They were having a hard time casting that. Here again, there's one where uh, I came in on the tail end of it. They, they tried a bunch of people. If you look at the character of Tailspin, I know we're talking about teenagers, but this kind of interesting. Um, he looks stupid. And, and so everyone was going and doing a big stupid character, and it wasn't working. And so I thought, well, I'll do him innocent, you know, where he doesn't really know things. He's innocent rather than stupid. And that seemed to work for the character. And it's interesting because I grew up around the deaf. My grandfather uh, taught the deaf and blind as a superintendent of the Idaho School for the Deaf and Blind. And I was around people that were innocent. They weren't stupid, but they were struggling with listening and hearing and, and of course, the blind with sight. And that's where I got that sense of the role. I didn't know it at the time, but that kind of, yo, oh, look, uh, there's a new island on the map. Oh, it's guacamole. <laughs> you know, the silliness and the openness. And um, the, the interesting part, guys, is that now, you know, years later, there's people in their 20s that uh, struggle with autism, ADHD, and they contact me and tell me how important that character was to them because everyone loved Wildcat, even though he was different. And, of course, their experience was being picked on at school all the time and teased. And so they said it, it really was a wonderful thing for them to see a character that pe people loved, even though he was different. And I didn't know where I got that. I wasn't making fun of people with, uh, that are challenged, but that's where it came from. And it turned out to be a blessing to me to be able to, you know, uh, to um, calm people and make them feel better as kids under adversity. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it turned out great. So they gave me even more meaningful. But I love doing it, and Disney gave me a lot of room, and I had a lot of takes because when you do a character like that, uh, sometimes it's not clear. And so they do do it again, do it again, and they let me go on and tell, yeah, that's clear enough, but I didn't lose the sense of joy and innocence of the character. Now, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on where the franchise of the, the Turtles has gone since you were involved in it. Well, you know, I'm not really on top of it. I, I haven't been for quite a while. In fact, I'll, I'll bet you I've seen a dozen of the shows, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, that I did. Because we have, we have so much work that, you know, I figure, you know, at one point I'm going to sit down and see my entire career of thousands of shows and enjoy them. So I, I have, you know, when you're 
busy making them, you don't have time to look at them, but or or see the franchise. I, I think that um, you know I, I I can see that's on fire. I mean, there's five hundred thousand fans on Facebook wow. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in one in one you know uh, club, as it were. You know, uh, there's a lot of interest because that's when you guys grew up. It's like uh, when I grew up, uh, it was uh, Yogi Bear and Flintstones and. And all the baby boomers look back to that when they were young. And so there's this wonderful sense of uh, when you grew up. It's not so much about the quality of a show in some ways. Like Rainbow Bright, I always thought was it was okay quality, but that's huge. Because mm-hmm. people are in their 20s and really near 30s, and they remember seeing that as a little kid. So there's a joy there, a connection. And I think that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is, is continuing to work the franchise. That the creators made a decision early on to take the edge off the show because it was a very edgy adult show, you know, a comic book rather, and make it for kids. So they really made a decision early on. Okay, we're going to take a lot of the edge out and and create this for kids, and that's that's why it lasted because it would never last. It was too strong, too edgy, too hard uh, to begin with for kids. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. They haven't made it very edgy. They haven't gone back to the original. It's never been real. You know, it's not like Batman where they made it very, very edgy. Yeah. And it was dark. If you, if you guys ever looked at comic books? Oh, yeah. It's it's very different from what, you know, you would think it was from the cartoons. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think I remember they killed people. Yeah. In the comic books. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it had a lot of edge. Of course, when you're holding two razor-sharp swords, how do you not kill someone? <laughs> yeah. There was always that discussion about the nunchakas and the way they used their weapons. It was always a, you know, a concern, but they got away with it. I remember uh, hearing about uh, they had a big lawsuit going on in uh, in England because someone, some kid had hurt another kid with, nunch- uh, with nunchucks. Yeah, well, there was, you know, when I was a kid, there was always some kid, there was always some lawsuit because, you know, somebody poked somebody in the eyes because they watched the Three Stooges. There's always some guy <laughs> that'll do that. You know, there's somebody that's always going to go too far. All right, let's let's talk about your, your voice, your teaching of the voice acting. How did you get um, involved in that? I, I was teaching at the beginning of my career. In fact, when in high school, when I was a senior, I was teaching the sophomores. In college, when I was a senior, I was in the freshman, and then uh, when I started my career in Australia after acting school, one of my first jobs was teaching voice at the local university. So it always came with, and so as I began my career doing voices, I was my students would insist that I told them what I was doing, so I had to articulate it and break it down, and so it always came with, and so I've been performing and teaching for about 37 years and now where I'm going is having events and teach and I try to bring in the best people in the country for my students so they, they really get taught by me and then the best too so they have access and uh, right now I'm, I'm around, going around the country teaching audiobook skills but I'm going back to uh, this is the 25th anniversary of me putting out a audio tape set called Creating Character Voices for Fun and Profit. So I'm going to do a whole tour doing with character voice. 
hmm. and teaching my, my uh, method on coming up with them and performing character voice. And I love it. I, I, I wouldn't trade performing for teaching. How would we be able to, how would someone be able to find out uh, where all you're going? And PatFraley.com, uh, P-A-T-F-R-A-L-E-Y.com. And then once you go there, there's free lessons, there's a free page of a bunch of lessons anybody can listen to and or watch some of our video. And then there's a shop page for different books that I've created and audio, and then there's a learn page, and that's where my teaching schedule is around the country. And they just email me from there. There's a, there's a you know, a, a link and just email me and I'll get, you know, get people in. So you have free classes and paid classes then? I actually, uh, the free classes I do at universities, they never have any money, so I'll go yeah. to the theater department like DePaul in Chicago and I just donate my time. But the free lessons are actually posted on the website. They're audio and video free lessons there. Now, what are some examples of somebody that, something that you would tell somebody new trying to get into the business? I'd first tell them to get as many skills as they can uh, with acting. Acting and storytelling. Oh, Jim McSwain is the, probably the best audio character animation track recorder ever says it's all about acting and storytelling and storytelling is acting uh -huh. so main thing is to get good acting down and then to study as much as one can where they live before they come to los angeles so they're skilled as they come in and if they want to come to los angeles these days you know you because of the internet uh there's all sorts of amazing opportunities to work from where one lives rather than live in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. But if one wants to get into character and animation work, I, I think L.A. is still the place you have to go. Yeah, definitely. I never wanted to move to Los Angeles. I mean, I have a ranch in Idaho, and I grew up in Seattle, but hey, that's where the work is, so that's where I went. Okay. Well, that's all I've got, Pat. Um, Jesse, do you have anything else to throw in there? Um, how do you keep track of all the voices? Like, uh, is it in instinctive? Like, once you get a voice down and do it for so long on a on a television show, it's uh, kinetic because you you put your body in a certain situation, and you, that physical muscular feeling helps you get into the voice of the character, and then the thinking and feeling of the character there too so it's not very hard that that you you know settled on a character and you acted within that that mask as it were it's, it's easy to jump into all right well, yeah pat i, I want to thank you so much for everything well it's a very much a pleasure for me too. <laughs> all right well guys thanks a lot I, it's always a blessing for me to be able to uh, talk about what i did it's just been a a wonderful career for me, and I just uh, I always love to share it. Awesome, man. Hey, we do appreciate thank it. Thank you very much. Thank okay. you for the childhood memories as well. <laughs> That's true. So long for now. Thank you. Thanks for listening to that Saturday Morning Rewind. Please check them out on Facebook and Twitter. And that's all, folks.